Albert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that we can know what to believe. Our first question today comes from a study that we did a while back. I did two studies on hell, and I brought up the rich man and and Lazarus uh, out of Luke chapter 16. And I had made mention that, that Abraham had said, you lived in luxury and he lived in poverty, but now you have your torments. And so I was asked the question, why was the rich man in hell or in Hades, since that's the word that's used. It's the equivalent to the Old Testament word Sheol, which is Hades. So I thought we would cover this passage and we want to take a look at answer, trying to answer that question, why was the rich man in Hades? So let's uh, look here on uh, Luke chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Now remember, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man being saved. And the disciples said, who then can be saved? So he was talking about an impossibility. This wasn't a gate that a camel went through. That's some kind of a myth that somebody brought up somewhere along the line. But it's literally a needle that they used to sew tents. And a camel can't go through an eye of a needle. So riches stand in the way of you being able to get into heaven. Why do they do that? They do that because you become prideful when you become wealthy. They do that because you trust in your riches rather than trusting in God. When you face hardships and difficulties, you're trusting in your riches and you're not turning to God. So it's a rarity. Now, Jesus' answer to them when they said, who then could be saved? He said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So rich men would be saved. But in contrast to this rich man, we also have a beggar. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. The miserable existence of a poor man speaks of the poor who struggle. The one man living luxuriously and the other man just barely being able to make it, hoping to feed himself by the crumbs that come um, off of the rich man's table. And Lazarus himself couldn't even see fit to help the guy that was right in front of him. We know it from Jesus. We know from what Jesus said that we are supposed to help the poor, that we're supposed to help the needy, that we're supposed to help those who are hungry and those who are in need, that we're to use the things that we have today to help widows and orphans, James said. Pure and undefiled religion is taking care of widows and orphans. And so we just don't want to take what God's provided for us today and not help anyone. We want to help those who are in need, but especially those that come across our path. That was the case here. It says, so it was that the beggar died and was carried by an angel to Abraham's bosom, Abraham's comfort. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, again, that's the term for the Old Testament, the term the grave. In Greek mythology, Hades was the god of the underworld. He lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water here and cool my tongue, for I am in torment in this flame. Now, it's believed that flame in the lake of fire and in Hades, which we would go, Hades would be the jail, lake of fire would be the prison, right? When someone dies now, they would go to a temporary holding place, be thrown in the lake of fire at the end of the age. And that fire here is an analogy to what it's going to be like to be separated from God. And so he's in torment in those flames and he wants some relief from the torment. But Abraham said, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. So is Jesus telling him that because you received good things, now you're tormented in Hades? Is that what he's saying? Or was he saying more than that? Which is you wouldn't reach out to even help comfort him in his lifetime, but now you want to be comforted by him? And then he says, and besides all this, there is a great gulf fixed so that no one uh, who wants, no one, none of those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. 
for I have five brothers that they that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment so here he's making an excuse for himself send to my brothers and tell them lest they come here had someone told me I wouldn't be here as well now look at Abraham's response Abraham said to him they have Moses and the prophets what did Moses do? He brought the law. What did the prophets do? They foretold the things that were going to happen. They spoke about the things of God. They spoke from God to people. The, uh, the prophets said things like, repent, for why will you perish? God takes don't delight in the death of the wicked. He could have listened to Moses and the prophets and he could have found everlasting life. He could have had Jesus's death and resurrection accredited to him, but he didn't do that. It says, and he said, no, Father Abraham, but if anyone goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses or the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, even though someone has raised from the dead, which is a pretty powerful statement that even if someone rises from the dead, they are not going to believe. I like the question, if Christianity were true, would you believe it? It's a Frank Turek question. And how many people will say no? Because it's not a matter of the truth. It's a matter of morals. They don't want to live the life that God gives them to live. But here's the thing, the life that God gives us is the best life. Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He said, come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Peter said that times of refreshing were going to come from the presence of the Lord. What is the reason that the rich man was in Hades? Because of every reason that people go. Because we are born sinful. We all like sheep are prone to go astray. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. It didn't have to do with the works that he did with his riches or didn't do with his riches. That was the result of who he was. He was one that was self-seeking and because of that he didn't care for the poor. But we who come to Christ, we do. This is the separation of the sheep and the goats. The goats don't care for those who are struggling and the sheep do. And the sheep say, when did we see you hungry and naked and thirsty and, and, and in prison and come and visit you and feed you and clothe you and give you water? And Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. This is part of the transformation that takes place in the life of a Christian. A Christian wants to help those who are struggling. A couple of things in application. Number one, when you find someone in your path that has a need, look to help them. Even if it means a sacrifice on your part, look for some way to make a difference in their lives. Also find ways, you can find ways to be able to help those who are struggling. We can give to um, different organizations. Uh, uh, there's a um, uh, gospel rescue mission here in Tucson, uh, the Joshua House, um, Church on the Street, all minister to homeless and addicted and supporting them financially is very powerful. And I think that we should do it. I really do. Those ministries need help and I think we should help them. But what about when someone crosses your path who needs help? And maybe it's more than just someone who's homeless that needs a night to stay somewhere. Maybe you make a sacrifice and you really help them. And that shows that you have that genuine commitment to Christ because we want our walk with Christ to be authentic. And authentic faith helps people who are in need. All right, so thank you very much for that question. Um, we may be changing things, by the way. Um, thank you guys for joining us here on, um, on this Q&A. Uh, this is a supplement to the Teaching Minister of Calvary Tucson. If you're watching any of our teachings and you have questions, this is the place where you can come and you can ask those questions. Um, we start off with a question that I was either asked personally or one that we find, um, or maybe a topic we talked about here, and we may still do that. But I would like to go to the book of Ephesians, and I wanna start taking a question from just a couple of verses at a time and make our way through the book. So the first question, if we don't have something that is pressing, will come out of the book of Ephesians from now on, all right? But it is good to have you guys joining us here today. Um, it looked like we might have had a problem with Facebook and I'm up. I see, I, I see one Facebook. All right. 
So I'm um, good to see you guys here. Uh, if you have a question, then you can write the word question down and then write out your question, put any references that are in there, reread it, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. So we have a question from Vivian. Vivian, good to see you. We also have a service a little bit later on tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about the, the divine direction of God. How do we know which way God is going, that, which way God wants us to go? How, how do we know what decisions to make? So Vivian says, Catholics believe in praying to saints to intercede. Um, am I correct in saying that once we are in heaven, we can't intercede for those who are on earth? Thank you, Pastor. Um, thank you, Vivian. I appreciate your question. And uh, yes, um, saints, Mary, they're not like God. God is all-powerful, all-knowing. He's beyond anything we could possibly imagine. He is transcendent to us. And I can pray to him and you can pray to him and a trillion other people can be interacting with God and have that interaction with him. But Mary is not like that. Neither are any of the saints that the Catholic Church has people praying to. They can't hear everybody's prayers all at once. And so where we get this idea that we can talk to the dead and that the dead um, can end up interacting or answering prayers or interacting on our part, I'm not really sure where we got that idea from. But the Bible never has us praying to anyone who is dead. The Bible forbids talking to the dead, so there's a problem with that. So um, I, I, I would, um, yeah, stay, stay away from it as far as you can. Um, I do have conversations periodically with those who are Catholic about not praying um, to saints or to Mary and rethinking their position on, on doing that. All right. I know a lot of um, a lot of people in Tucson were brought up in the Catholic faith, and a lot haven't broken completely away from it. I used to have a gal who would come up to me and she would say, "I'm coming to church here, but I'm still Catholic." And I would tell her, "Okay, that's fine. We have no problem with that." Um, but eventually, she came and she said, "I have turned away from Catholicism uh, because of the emphasis on unbiblical things. I believe that Catholics have the pieces for real faith." They believe in the resurrection. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the things of the Apostles' Creed. And so they can have faith in Christ. And some do have a real relationship with him. And I would not judge um, those individuals. But also, you can begin to add baggage. And probably to some degree, we all do. But you can add baggage. And if it's traditional baggage, like what the Catholic Church does, or the Church of Christ has, or the Seventh-day Adventist Church, where they take the teachings of men, as Jesus said, and you make them out to be the teachings of God, that becomes extremely uh, problematic. All right, so I appreciate that. Uh, let's see, um, we have a question from Christian, um, yeah, well, let's call him Christian. We have a question from Christian. Christian says, can young children, starting from the age of two or up, have a show or show signs of having the Holy Spirit? Uh, well, let's just think about this um, for a moment, uh, Christian. John the Baptist was in the womb of Elizabeth, and Mary was pregnant with Jesus, and Jesus had just been conceived. John the Baptist had been conceived for approximately six months. And when Mary walked in the room, the Bible says that the baby leapt inside of Elizabeth's womb. Now, I heard someone here say recently that you can't make a position for life from the Bible. And he put that up on Facebook and he's Christian um, don't know why exactly he was making that statement, but he was so overwhelmed with passages in the Bible that were connected to it. And one of them was this, that the baby leapt in her womb. What is, what is it when it's in the womb? And so for a Christian to actually think, and I think maybe they get caught up in politics to some degree. And when you get onto one side of politics, you might start defending something as awful as as this. 
And um, so if a baby, sorry, I got sidetracked. If a baby in the womb leaped in response to the Messiah coming in, then I think that a child could show signs of having the Holy Spirit and having faith. We don't know exactly when. Um, God talked about children knowing their right hand from their left. Um, my daughter had a relationship with God the whole time she was growing up, from the time that she was a, a little bitty girl. And she can never point to a time when she gave her life to Christ. She is genuinely saved, living for Him, but she didn't have any point where she said, I'm now a Christian, because she trusted and had faith in Him all along. So I do think that's possible. Um, I would like to know a little bit more, you know, when you show, say so, signs of having the Holy Spirit. Are you talking about having the Holy Spirit that has faith? Are you talking about doing some kind of sign gifts, some kind of, of gifts that someone filled with the Holy Spirit would do? So I might have a concern if it is the second, and maybe we could talk a little bit more about that if you want to add um, a follow-up to this question, all right? But certainly, um, I don't think there's anything that hinders a child who wants a relationship with Christ from being filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, so I, I, I appreciate that. Um, uh, yeah, so let's see. We have a question from Matthew Wilson. Matthew says, hello, Pastor. Hello, Matthew, how are you? Um, Hello, Pastor. Can uh, Pastor Robert, can you explain in Luke 16 how Abraham was able to talk to the rich man? So it looks like, and 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 here's the thing about about Luke 16. Is it a literal place? We think so. Um, some don't. The, it looks like this was like a capsule, and it had a place where Abraham's comfort was, and a place where there were those in torment. Now, I want to distinguish between the, the word torment and torture. And this is something that I did on our teaching in hell. We have to get rid of the idea of torture. It is torment, and the torment is in the mind. It's, it is, like C.S. Lewis said, that it's the, the anger and the hatred of God and not wanting to be with him. This is why he said the doors of hell are locked from the inside, because the person doesn't want to go to heaven. They don't like God. They don't love him. They don't want to go uh, to where God is. And so they find themselves separated from them and they are in torment. And so it seems that they could, there was a gulf between them, but they could see each other in comfort and in torment. And if this in, is indeed Hades, um, which I do not believe is in the center of the earth, by the way, there are those that believe that, that Hades, this holding place, like I said, you've got one as a prison and the other as a penitentiary. The lake of fire is a penitentiary. Hades would be the prison. Uh, and those who believe it's in the center of the earth. Um, and I don't know of any place in the Bible where it talks about Hades being in the center of the earth. I do know in Greek mythology and in other traditions, Hades or, or hell was to be in the center of the earth. And we want to be able to divide out what other traditions have about hell and what the Bible says about it to be able to distinguish between them. And so, um, was this just a story, Matthew, that Jesus was showing the difference between the two and that the rich man was, was making up his own? Or, or was this a place where they were held in comfort until Jesus died on the cross? There's an interesting passage in Ephesians 4 that says, Jesus, this one who, who ascended first descended and bringing a host of captivities out of captive. And so it's believed that he went and took all of these people, David and Abraham and Lazarus, and brought them out of that part of Hades, and then it was, it was closed forever. And Hades just means death and the grave, okay? So it's the shadowy underworld. It's where people go after they die. And so um, the rich man and Lazarus um, were, were both there. If this, again, is a true story, and I lean towards it actually being a true story, um, so I think that's how they were able to see one another. And now when you die, you go in the presence of God. So to be absent from the body is to be present uh, with the Lord. All right. So thank you very much, Matthew. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Jari about Daniel. Jari says, did Daniel show examples of pious fraud? Um, 
I heard Frank Turek teach Daniel lied at one point, but and I um, and other people can't find the verse he is referring to. What are your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts are, um, Jari, that maybe it was just that uh, he just misspoke. That he was talking about Joseph. Remember, Joseph lied to his brothers about being a diviner and hid the the a divining plate in the bags of Benjamin, the youngest, when he was testing his brothers. So maybe it was a it was him misspeaking. Um, I don't know of any place that Daniel told a lie. You know, I mean, he went straight forward, opened up his windows and prayed towards Jerusalem when they told him that he couldn't pray and, and did not try to cover that up. Uh, he went straight to, um, uh, to Belshazzar and told him that he was going to die. The handwriting on the wall means you're going to die and told him the truth. Uh, he told Nebuchadnezzar the truth about the dreams that were there. Um, so I think you're right. But listen, as a pastor, <laughs> that you have to teach and you're giving five teachings, uh, you're giving seven, giving, uh, now we're do, we do, uh, let's see, uh, six teachings a week. And the Bible says if a man doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. And so I'll tell you that my wife, I'll be driving home, my wife says, did you know that you called Rachel um, uh, um, Rebecca? And I'll be like, nope. Didn't know it, bummed out. But what I do know is that most of the times you you know when a mistake has been made. And so Frank Turek um, was probably talking about Rahab and the um, the 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 midwives, and maybe maybe Joseph. The thing about Rahab and the midwives and the Nazis lying or or people in, uh, lying to protect Nazis is those are lies that are told because of evil that's in the world. And you might even say that about Joseph, that Joseph lied in order to find out what his brothers were really like, what was really in their heart. Was there any repentance in there for him to be able to be restored to them? If you take evil out of the world, then you don't have to have anyone lying. And the people who lied in the Bible uh, that were, were lied in a, in a, connected anyway to a righteous act like Rahab or the midwives, uh, they lied because there was some evil in the world. And so I just think he misspoke. That's what I think. And if I'm wrong and someone else here knows uh, of a place where Daniel lied, then let us know. All right, then correct us. I appreciate that. All right, so Mike has a question to us. Is Jeremiah 29:11 a verse for us today? Um, Mike, I think that's a great question, and I'm going to go there to it. And there's so much that we can learn from a question like this. Okay, so um, Revelation um, Jeremiah 29:11. So Jeremiah 29:11 says, "I know the plans that I have for you," says the Lord. Um, uh, I know the thoughts that I have for you. Uh, and but I, we need to go back a little bit. Let me see how far back I need to go here. I might go back all the way. Um, all right, so let's go back to Jeremiah 29.4. We're going to start there, Mike. So it says, um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who were carried away captive, who I have uh, caused to be carried away from Jerusalem, Babylon build houses and dwell in them, plant gardens and eat their fruits. So he's talking to them about what they are supposed to do, why they're there, all right? Now we come to verse 11, and it still hasn't changed. For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit and perform my good word towards you and cause you to return to this place. So that's the context of that passage. They have been carried away into Babylon. God tells them to go through the 70 years that are there, but he's going to visit them. And then God says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Now that's particularly to Israel, all right? Thoughts of peace and not of evil. Thoughts to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you and you will seek me when you find me, when you search for me with all of your heart. Obviously, this is not a generic promise in the book of Proverbs. So you can find a lot of things like, um, uh, what is it, um, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. So that's a generic promise that is to, the, to, to anyone who is a child of God who is following God. This is obviously not that. So my question is always this, Mike, and I was talking to Elisa Childers and Frank Turk about, and my wife was there, this um, on this very topic. And that is, what do we do with a verse like this? Because it obviously says some good things that people are encouraged by it, but it's obviously not to us. And my response to it was what I like to do is rebuild it. Can I rebuild a verse from other places? And if I can rebuild a verse from other places where it's more generic and more of a promise to a Christian, just a, a genuine Christian or be believer in the Old Testament, then you might be able to say, okay, well, there's not a problem with that. Because sometimes when, when someone, sometimes someone's really hurting and they're getting ready to go through something that's really dramatic. And then someone gives them this verse and it uplifts them. And then they say, I got this verse. And then someone says to them, that's not for you. And it just kind of dashes them. So you've got to be wise. And sometimes we don't want to be so pedantic that we crush people. We want to be thoughtful for what someone may be going through. And I'm not acting like I've never been <laughs> that kind of thoughtless individual to bring correction in. But when a, when a verse is being misapplied, but let's just see if we can rebuild it. Okay. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you says the Lord. Okay. Well, I think of Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So God's even going to take things that are bad and evil and he's going to work them towards our good. So I can say, I think we could rebuild that part of the verse. Thoughts of peace and not of evil. It depends on when you want to apply this. They're going to be there for 70 years in Babylon. They've got a lot of things happening in Babylon. So when God says not of peace and evil, ultimately God has thoughts for us of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Certainly we can put that into heaven. Now they're going to be 70 years in the land and now they're going to, then they're going to be taken out. So it's future. So we could say, we can rebuild that. Then you will call upon me um, and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me um, with all of your heart. And I will be found, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. So, I mean, you, you want to try to now spiritualize captivity. So when you search the Lord, you find him, you will search for him with all of your heart. I think we can rebuild that. God's reward of those who diligently seek him. So I think we can take parts of this passage and we can rebuild it so we can use it. But I would rather use the other passages because it becomes so obvious. He's bringing them out of captivity and they're the ones who are in captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you. And that doesn't apply to us. We're the church. We, we are the people who have made up the church. This is Israel who will be brought back into it. I would rather, let's just say I'm writing a card to someone who's getting ready to go into surgery. And they're scared that, that the surgery, they're, they're hoping it's going to be successful. They're scared it's not going to be successful. Then I would probably put the verses in that would rebuild this passage rather than use this passage. In other words, I would say, um, and God, our God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love him. I know you love him and God's going to work this together for the good. I, I would start there. I would say, um, that God, Jesus came as the Prince of Peace and wants you to have peace. And he came also to set us free from evil. And we know that we'll be with him, that he really has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That's Romans 8, 29. That's to give us a future and a hope. Now, it doesn't mean that in between time, we not, might not go through hardships and difficulties. And that's often what's ignored. And then you will call upon me and you will go and pray for me and I will listen to you. Um, and now God's just saying to Israel that he's going to restore them, but I would say that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him and all who call on his name would be saved. So, Mike, I would, um, I would say that this verse is not for the Christian, but I also believe that the majority of it can be rebuilt. Now, there's some ways that you can look at this that can't be rebuilt. And I think of some other passages where people use that cannot be rebuilt, like um, 
No, maybe that maybe they maybe maybe some can be, but there are some passages that can be rebuilt. But in order to apply them, I try to, because we want to make sure that we're reading the Bible in its context. And this is a specific promise to Israel that is not a specific promise to um, the church. All right, Mike, thank you very much for your question. Um, very thoughtful and something a lot of people are thinking about today. So we have a question from. BP, and if you're visiting for us with us here the first time uh, on this Q&A, let me get back over to this screen, uh, and then let me bring back in the question into the proper screen. Uh, if you're visiting with us today or you're here for the very first time, really glad to have you here. Uh, we will discuss anything biblical. Our desire is to know what God's Word says, not claiming to have all the answers, um, but we can go to the one that does, and sometimes even when we go, well, we're not quite sure, we can revisit that here. We do this every Wednesday and Saturday, or we do it on Wednesdays and Saturdays uh, most often. Sometimes we'll miss, um, but it is a supplement to our teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson, and you can go and see our videos at calvarytucson.com. Uh, you can also go to YouTube, Facebook uh, to see them there. All right, so this question is about Ephesians 1.10. is speaking of the rapture as the fullness of times, when the fullness of times of the Gentiles go all throughout the tribulation. So Ephesians 1.10. Huh, well, I'm trying to think of what Ephesians 1.10 says. I like to, to think about it before we actually get there, but I'm not sure what Ephesians 1.10 says. So let's go ahead and pull it up here. And, um, Ephesians 1.10. Let me just find a place to start here. I want to start a little bit back. All right, we're going to start in, in verse 7, all right? B, P, and E. So, I'm going to go ahead and I'll bring this down here. And in verse 7, this is Ephesians 1. Starting with verse 7, we're going to go to 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he uh, purchased in himself. So it's just all about our salvation, basic salvation. This starts, Ephesians 1 starts out to the faithful who are in Christ. And now we're getting a list of those things. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together one and all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are um, with uh, and which are on earth. Um, that's interesting. So I, I have never seen the rapture of the church in this verse. Teaching through the book of Ephesians, I don't know how many times. But that in the dispensation of fullness of times. Let's go ahead, let's come out of this for a minute. Let's go ahead and open up our, um, let's see if I can find our Strong's. I would like to take a look at a couple of these words. And then we're going to go to Ephesians 10.1. Uh, I, I think it certainly sounds like he could be talking about the gathering, right? He talks about the gathering together. But let's go to Ephesians 1, and we're going to go to 10. And we're just going to look at a couple of words together, all right? So let's first of all look at dispensation, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time. So we're going to think that dispensation is going to mean age, okay? So I'm not going to try to pronounce the word there, administration or estate, especially economy, dispensation, stewardship. All right, that's an interesting way to translate it. Let's see how it's translated. A dispensation of steward, stewardship, the dispensation, the stewards. So it seems to be connected to a household estate. That's a different word than I thought it was going to be. An interesting, interesting study. All right, well, let's go back and let's take a look. So um, I want to go and see how this is translated in some of the other translations in a moment. Um, of the fullness of time, he might gather... See what the word gather is. All right. To sure up, briefly comprehend, gather together in one. All right. So I think, and let me look at the other words that it's used here. That he might gather 
Uh, it is, um, hmm. all right, let's go back. So gather seems to be a good word. Uh, they might gather together, um, together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and are on earth, even in him, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of his will, who worketh all things in the counsel of his own will. Um, I'm, I'm going to say, yeah. Um, I think that this could, let me come back here. I want to go back to the, our normal Bible program that we have here. And I'm going to say, yeah, I think this could very easily be um, from uh, speaking about the rapture, BP and E. Uh, let's just do this. Let's go ahead and go back over to the text. Let me go and I'm going to look for at it at a couple of different uh, places first. So um, I'm looking at the NASB really quick. It, it says um, regarding his plan of the fullness of times to bring all things together in Christ, things in heaven and on the earth. Let me just bring this up. This is a, such a different translation, and you don't often find that from the New King James. Regarding his plan, remember it's stewardship. So instead of dispensation, where we think of dispensations as ages, regarding his plan of the fullness of time, that's when everything is together, bringing all things together in Christ, in the heavens and on the earth, which seems to be bringing with him those who have died. And uh, yeah, I think that this very easily could be, oops, let me just do this. I think this could very easily be, I'm going to go to the NIV real quick. Um, to be put into effect when the times reach the fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and under the earth in Christ. So, yeah, I'm going to give you a thumbs up on, I'm going to go, let me go back to the New King James. I'm going to give you a thumbs up on that this could be a reference to the rapture of the church. Um, I would be interested in how those who would read it, who would not believe that it is the rapture of the church, so now that we know that we're talking about his stewardship in us for dispensation there, let's just bring it back up here and see if it can be read so that it's not the rapture. That in the dispensation or the stewardship of the fullness of times, that he's going to oversee the fullness of times, right? He might gather together, and that so reminds us of 1 Thessalonians 2, our gathering together of him, speaking of the Lord's day and our gathering together of him. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 or 4, where it talks about all of us being gathered together. Um, we'll be caught up to meet him in the air and forever be with the Lord and to bring with him those in the resurrection there. Um, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, are on the earth in him. So if I were going to play the devil's advocate here, I would say, well, this could just be a, a reading of him finally bringing everyone together at the end when he finally returns. And um, it doesn't necessarily mean the rapture. I would argue the rapture is going to happen no matter what. And wherever you want to put the rapture, this would be speaking of it. So, um, good find, B, P, and E. I do think that Ephesians 1.10 is speaking of the rapture as the fullness of time and the gathering together um, from heaven and earth, from all saints from heaven and earth. All right? So, um, yes, good, uh, good find. And I had never read it that way before. As I said, even doing very in-depth studies on the book of on the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be doing that anyway. So we'll be talking about that again. That'll give us a chance because remember, we're just going to take a couple verses. We're going to ask a question from those verses. That's how we're going to begin our Q and A's from here on out. Unless we've got a question that just stands out that someone has asked. All right. So um, let me bring your question back in here, Jari. Follow up. Jari says, "Follow up. How could it be a true story?" Is it more like um, Anakin says to Obi-Wan Kenobi, how could it be, um, I hate you, God, keep me in hell, I don't want to escape, listen, or please, I thirst, take uh, me out of here. Uh, yeah, um, how could it be a true story? If, I, if that's what I'm, if I'm reading it right, how could it be a true story? It would be, that the rich man and Lazarus died and they both, went, they both went into the grave and behind the grave is the shadowy world of the, of, of the dead and on one side is torment because they were self-seeking 
and didn't deal with their own imperfections and sins. And on the other side are people that had a relationship with God, who had sought him, who had responded positively to the light that was behind them. And one was in comfort and the other one was in torment. The torment, again, and the flames could represent a lot of different things. But I do think that this could easily be a literal story. And I don't think that we have to make it like, um, like Star Wars to do that. I think, indeed, it might be the, the easiest reading. And hermeneutics says, this, the, the study of a Bible study says, look for the first sense. What does it first of all seem to be saying? And um, try not to, to vary too far from that. All right. So, um, let's see. Christopher has this a question here. Am I coming in in the middle of our conversation? Christopher. Christopher says, to me, Gentiles refer to unbelievers, those who don't know God. I consider all those who are chosen. Gentiles are Jews, are all in Israel. And I think he's quoting Galatians. Um, yeah, Christopher is quoting uh, Galatians 3.28, which is going to say, I believe, that there is no Jew or Gentile before God. Let me get there and just take a look here. Yeah, that's it. Let me bring this up here. Um, it says, um, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Uh, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, but all are one in Christ. So, uh, came in in the middle of this. Not sure what um, it's referring to. All right. But um, I haven't thought much about how far it would go. Uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure. All right. So I'll go find the next question. Um, sometimes I want to get involved in the live stream like you guys are. Uh, so we have, uh, let's see. Um, if you're with us, we, um, we um, Brady has a question. Or Brady, Brady. Question, how do you reconcile differences in meaning like just updated language from the King James and newer translations. Example, the word Calvary is not found anywhere in any new translations. Um, thanks. Um, yeah, that is, um, that is interesting. I'm not sure of the background from Golgotha to Calvary. And so if they're using Golgotha, they're using the Hebrew word for what has become known as Calvary. And I'm just going to have to plead ignorance here. I, I assume that Calvary is the Greek for the Hebrew Golgotha, but I'm, I might not be right. So, um, sorry. But sometimes I just need to, um, I just need to play the ignorance and see. We'll take a look at it and um, we'll revisit this. All right. I'll try to remember to take a look at that um, and to see why the new versions of the Bible don't use the word Calvary. Maybe we need to change Calvary Tucson to Golgotha Tucson. Um, Susan says, um, I have a friend who believed God condemns people to hell. Does it say anywhere in the Bible to back that up? That God condemns people to hell? No, in fact, I think the opposite is said. And let me look at a picture. Let me, I mean, let me look at a passage here for you, Susan. All right. And, um, and I think this is really important because people say, I can't follow a God who would send anyone to hell. Now, I think there's a few things that are wrong with that particular statement. I think, number one, God's not sending anyone to hell. They're on their way. They're, they're, they were born sinners, and we have been given light from God, and we have rejected it so we are without excuse. God has given us the law written on our heart. He's manifest himself to us. He's given us creation. And we have loved the creation rather than the creator and served him. And we are without excuse. That's Romans 1 and Romans 2. Okay? So, here, you know this verse well, uh, Susan Adams. It says, 
um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the desire is that all would be saved and all would come to the knowledge of the truth. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light. So that's like Romans 1. They, they believed the lie, they are without excuse. They, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And so they are without, they are, they are in darkness. Um, it says, they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, which is the same thing Romans 1 and 2 says. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does, does the truth comes to the light, that the deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So yeah, your friend is not correct. The Bible does not say, and I'll just bring your question back up in here for a moment. The Bible does not say God condemns people to hell. There is a judgment and everyone is judged by their works and by their deeds, but they're condemned already, the Bible says, that the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn, but they are condemned already. So that's uh, John 3. You can start at verse 16. Again, very well-known verse. You can kind of start there and you can move on from there. All right? So thank you very much, Susan, uh, for that question. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, let's see. So Susan has another question. Um, so the word that I should use is predestined. So it's kind of a follow-up. Would God ever predestine someone to go to hell? So the word predestined and I don't know if you're talking to a Calvinist, Susan. So, a Calvinist believes that God has chosen people before the foundations of the world, some to be predestined to heaven and some to be predestined to hell. The Bible teaches that anyone who believes in him can be saved, that we have choices. And God commands men everywhere to repent. And the Bible teaches that God has given a certain amount of light to everyone. I call them grace. Uh, Paul said to the Athenians, God is not far from any one of us. And the Athenians were an uh, unreached people group at the time. And God is not far from any of them that they might grope for him and find him. And so God's desire is that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It says that in Peter. It says that in, I think it's 2 Timothy. Both passages. God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So God has predestined the faithful. So those who believe are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, are predestined. In Ephesians chapter 1, it speaks of the, the, uh, the faithful being predestined. And again, we're going to get into this, um, but let me just go ahead and look over into it now here, Susan, um, a passage on predestination. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's the faithful that he's talking to. That's what he's saying. Grace to you and peace from our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us for every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So it's again the faithful. We and the faithful have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly place because we have faith just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. So we were chose in him because we were faithful. It's the faithful. So what did God do in the beginning of the world, before the foundations of the world? Did he say, Robert, Jari, Psych Man, all going to heaven. The rest of you, eh, not. Or, you know, you over here, you over, no. He predestined that anyone who would believe in him would enter into heaven. It's like if I said, um, it's like if I, if I plant a, I plant a field, and it's in an area where there's a lot of lightning strikes. Well, let me let me do this. Um, let, let me do this. Um, there's a golf course, and it's in an area where the monsoons come through, and there can be rainstorms and lightning strikes that are very quick. And so there's a shelter built in the middle of it so that if you get caught in a thunderstorm, you can go into that shelter and be protected from lightning. 
Now, when the, the storm comes through and you go in there, it has been f predestined that if you go in there, you will be saved from the lightning strikes. There was a shelter that was available. If you stay out on the course and continue to stick up a graphite or iron, you know, rod into the air in the form of a club and you get struck with lightning, then it wasn't that the place wasn't available for you because it was. But only if you go in will you be saved. And so it's faith. And those who are faithful are chosen him before the foundations of the world. And then it says to be holy and just, to be without blame before him, in love having predestined us to adoption as sons. So anyone who receives him, we have an adoption. And so anyone who is faithful is adopted as a son into the family of God. So God hasn't predestined. So when you read this passage, it's so tempting to read it like the, like the Calvinists would read it that God predestined us, and then would add in, before the foundations of the world, um, arbitrarily choosing some to be saved and some to be lost. But it never says that. Neither does Romans 9. Romans 9 says that God, and it says, who are you to speak against God, who makes some vessels for honor and some for dishonor? The vessels of honor are those who believe by faith, the end of the chapter in chapter 9, and the vessels of dishonor are those who do not believe but try to get saved by works. So, the predestination, and it doesn't ever say there that God chooses before the foundations of the world arbitrarily some to be saved and some to be lost. They don't like the word arbitrary. I don't know what else to, word to use. I'm not trying to, to straw man their position. I would rather steel man or strong man their position. Than, than, but, but it just, at, at both passages are to the faithful and God's predestining of the faithful. So, God has not chosen some people and predestined them to be tormented in hell forever, just creating them, knowing that they're gonna to be tormented. But God gives everyone a chance, everyone. And, and we talked about in our, in our last Q&A, Susan, uh, we talked about the passages out of Romans and Acts, which tells us that God gives light to every person and, and how they respond to that light matters, okay? And so you're probably talking with a, um, someone who is a Calvinist. I believe they're Christians. Um, I also believe their theology is highly problematic. And we can talk more about that if you would like to. Um, let's see, so we have a, a question from Mike Coyle. Uh, about the conference we just had. So we had a Defending the Faith, I mean, we, um, let's see, this was, um, uh, we had the Unshaken Conference at the, at the church last Saturday. Uh, Lisa Childers, Natasha Crane, and Frank Troika were there. Um, and Mike, I think I saw you there. During the Apologetics Conference this past weekend, yep, the speakers were asked about things they shouldn't say when defending the faith. One of the speakers indicated that he wouldn't say Jesus loves everybody. Do you agree with the statement? Oh, I wish I heard it. So I had skipped lunch, things got so busy, and right before the Q&A, I snuck out and grabbed one of the leftover Chick-fil-A sandwiches that were there, and I ate that, and I ended up talking to some people back in the green room, and I missed this statement. So I would love to know, I would love to know the context, because I can't imagine any one of them saying that he wouldn't say to everybody, that God loves them, not these three. Um, I'd love to get, yeah, there's no way, we don't, we don't, we don't have it available online. Um, okay, so we know that God says, for God so loves the world, right? So God loves the world. Um, we also know that not only does God love the world, but that God, um, I'm trying to think of the other passages that talk about, uh, that talk about love. Uh, they'll usually go to Esau, I have loved, and Jacob, I have hated. But that's because they became enemies, and we've talked about that before, and I can do that again in the future here, Mike, where we talk about what the Bible means by enemy or hate. It means they became an enemy of God by the things that they did. Um, and, maybe, and maybe that's what was being brought up. Maybe that's what's being said. So let me just try to defend their position here quickly. So 
I would say that God loves everyone and desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. But people can become an enemy of God. And in the Bible, it says there of, of the nation of Israel, there I began to hate them because of their idolatry. And the word for hatred there is the root word for enemy. There they became my enemy. God loved them, but they became his enemy. So is it possible that there are some today who have moved from, from where God loved them to where they have become an enemy of God and they hate him? And that might be what they're saying. And in that, I would say, well, yeah, like someone who has committed the unforgivable sin. They cannot be saved. And they moved into the enemy position of God. And that, that God doesn't love them now. Um, the Bible says God hates all the workers of iniquity. Again, this is the word for enemy. Um, the enemy, um, all the workers of iniquity have become the enemies of God. So I would say that's probably what he's saying, Mike. Um, this weekend speakers uh, shouldn't win their word of faith. One speaker indicated that we should say, that we, we, that we shouldn't say, um, yeah, I'm, all right, well, I'm interested in exactly what that statement was and who said it. So um, maybe if you can give a little bit more information on that, I would appreciate that. I could just also make a couple phone calls. Um, but I, in defending their positions, that's what I position. That's what I would say. I would say that people have moved into a position with God, but I would say that God has created everyone and and loves them, and that's what it means by God so loved the world. All right. So thank you, Mike. I appreciate that. Um, I wish I I would have caught that. So just looking here for another question. We're coming to the end of our Q and A. Uh, if you have a question, you can write the word question down. And you can write it out reread it, make sure um, that it makes sense. Um, I, um, um, Jari says, well, we have a question from Eric here. Let's cover that first. Jari says, Calvinism makes no sense. And I agree with you. Um, I, I've had Calvinism explained to me. I have tried to understand it completely, but they just come to two places that are incompatible. Even they call it compatibilism. That's a reference they use to try to say it is compatible, even though there's two different statements. Um, that's something they come up with that I, it just doesn't make any sense in the end. All right, so Eric says, hi, Robert. Um, what was life like before Jesus came? Was it all pain and suffering and no mediator? No, Eric, God has given everyone life and God causes the sun to shine on the rich and the poor. And in the Old Testament, there's people who are godly that are lamenting the fact that the righteous are flourishing. So a lot of people flourished and a lot of people had what they would consider to be great lives without God. But everyone comes to an end and everyone faces dark and difficult days. And everyone is in a fallen world. And we all have things that we have to do and say um, that are in this world, you will have trouble. And so, no, it wasn't. But when you come to Christ, and the same, it would be the same as unbelievers today. They're unbelievers today. They're perfectly happy with their lives. They don't want to come to God and they don't want to believe in him. They don't want to follow him. So it would be the same as somebody living today um, that doesn't want Christ, Eric. They just, um, they could be living a great life now, but they could live, the, they could live a great life all the way into the grave and then not see Christ and then be condemned uh, be be resurrected, judged, and punished. The Bible clearly states that. There's no way around it. Anyone who begins to teach, like a lot of the, um, a lot of uh, the progressive Christians today, want to teach that there is no resurrection, judgment, and punishment. They might want a resurrection, but they don't want the judgment and punishment. You've got to have all of those in order for the Bible to be true. Okay. So yeah, they're. Um, there are a lot of people that don't have much pain here on earth and um, are living in luxury like the rich man, but will find things different when they, when they die. All right, so good to see you guys. Good to have you here. This is the end of our Q&A today. Uh, we will, again, Lord willing, be having another Q&A this Wednesday. We'll be completing the book of Revelation, and I am thinking about going into the book of Nehemiah next. Uh, we will take a look at that and see uh, but um, I really look forward 
uh, to being with you guys next week, to the questions that you have. And um, we'll come back and take a look at this. As I said, next week, we're going to start our study in the book of Ephesians. That'll be the first question, something that I take from the book of Ephesians, turn it into a question form, and we'll ask that questions. And we'll make our way through the book of Ephesians together over the next, um, over the next few months. All right? So another little Bible study uh, that we'll have going on. I look forward to seeing you guys later. Stay close to Jesus. Walk in the Spirit so that you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Delight in the Lord so uh, he gives you the desires of your heart. Let God's word abide in you and you abide in the vine that you can have whatever you desire and be authentic in your relationship with Christ. Be genuine. Turn away from sin and repent. And don't allow there to be unrepented sin in your life. But live for him wholeheartedly. And may God bless you. Remember, the Christian life has self-denial and picking up your cross. And this means you're going to delay instant gratification. And look for the way of escape when you face it. When you're facing temptation, look for the way of escape. All right. Thank you, Keith, for being here with us today. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you guys who are new here. Good to have you here. Uh, we'll see you in our next Q&A, which Lord willing will be next Saturday. Love you. We'll see you later on. I'm out.